Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is our conversation with Steve Flink four times a year after every major. Always a highlight for me. I hope it's a highlight for you as well. In this one, I'd say 90% of it is centered around the men's final. Usually we spread the wealth a lot more, but it's such a monumental result. So much to talk about uh, with Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic as well. Uh, I will say, you know, we kind of focus on Djokovic at the start of it, but don't worry, bear with us. We do get to uh, in-depth conversation about Carlos Alcaraz. A little bit on Medvedev, a little bit on Sinner at the end. So without further ado, here's Steve Flink. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. His latest book is Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And uh, it is always a pleasure to chat after majors. So look forward to it. And uh, especially Wimbledon. You know, I, I remember in 2019, we got to watch some tennis together on, on center court at Wimbledon. It, it's a fantastic memory. Uh, so even more so when it's Wimbledon, Steve, and what a final uh, we have to discuss this time. We do, Gil. It seems like a, 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 we're, we're never at we're never at a loss for words when it comes to talking about these majors right after right after they conclude. And I I hope that this discussion will be as enlightening as I believe many of the past ones have been as well. Me as well. All right, let's get into it, and we'll we'll start with the final. Uh, you know, I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on the final, and then we'll get to other stuff. One of my favorite questions to ask after a match like this is what surprised you most about what went down? What aspect of that match caught you off guard and took you by surprise? Well, two, two. Number one, Djokovic at set point in the second set, poised to go up two sets to love and, and where I think he would have been unstoppable. And he, he uh, makes a, a nice return of serve and back comes Carlos with a cross-court back in without much pace on it, by the way. Certainly wasn't rushing Novak. And then Novak totally uncharacteristically didn't give himself enough margin for error. And he hit the net tape and lost the point and then followed with a, another back in error from the far side. After they changed ends, he made another error and, and soon the set was gone. So that really surprised me because he's such a great clutch player. And the second one was when he had regained the initiative, uh, having won the fourth with a chance to break right at the start of the fifth. And he missed that swing volley. Now, some criticize him. I know a, a number of people, including uh, my friend Uvalda Scanagata from Italy and Jim Courier and his commentary heard him. And they all thought he should have taken it as an overhead. And I fully understood why he didn't. Because when the overhead is, your, is the one area of your game that you don't have total certainty with, uh, 
why uh, he didn't want to risk it. I totally get that. What I didn't get was why he didn't execute the, the swing volley better and make it. He tried to go behind Carlos down the line and hit it in the, into the net. So those are the, the, that's what surprised me because in either instance, Gil, in my view, if he wins either point, he wins the match. And interestingly enough, I, I, that's how I felt at the time. And, and I heard Courier when I came back on the commentary say just that and to his great credit. He said, you know, that it might, yeah, the gist of it was that, that that point could cost him another Wimbledon title, uh, the one in the fifth set. But I also think I would have said that about the earlier one as well. I think he did a great job to get back into the match. But I'm just saying we know Novak as the great as a great match player, as at his very best in the clutch, in when the pressure is greatest, he, he he always holds up. So that surprises me because I've seen that. I haven't seen him do that in a big match. It's not that it, you know, it was prolonged choking or anything like that, but when he had his two chances to really put the match uh, comfortably to, to make himself comfortable about winning and be likely to run it out in each case, you know, he faltered once with a, a two-hander cross court and the, and the second with the swing volley. Okay, let's talk about both of those things. It's, it is a, a good place to start because it's two uh, very, very pivotal moments. I, after the match, you know, Novak said, I've won so many matches like this in my career. Like th this kind of one or two points, fifth sets, it, it has tended to go Novak's way. So looking at what happened here, do you look at it as Djokovic uh, actually did get tight and, you know, uncharacteristically so? Or is it just kind of law of averages? Uh, sometimes, eventually, it was just going to go the other way on him and he was going to lose a close match where there were a couple of, of points where he made uncharacteristic mistakes. Is it... Is it just a matter of time, or, or do you think that he was actually nervous in those moments? That's a fascinating question. I think, Gil, number one, that he was very, that was a very healthy way for Djokovic to look at it, rather than to beat himself up, say, look, I won a, a lot of these matches. What, in essence, what he was saying is maybe I shouldn't have won some of those matches in the past, and maybe I should have won today. In other words, mm -hmm. It, that's how tennis can work. And we know it's true. Having said that, I still think he got tight on those big points. And I can, I, and maybe if you think about the historical implications of what that match would have meant, it, it does make some sense because he's going for an eighth Wimbledon title to tie Federer's record. He's going for a third straight major to put himself in a, in a position to go for the Grand Slam in New York for the second time in three years, which was inconceivable to me. Because I thought when he lost to Medvedev in the U.S. Open final in 2021, that was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He nearly got himself back in that position. So, I mean, he, you, had, you, you, you had so much riding. He would have had a 24th major, so he would have tied Margaret Court for the record for all players, not just men. There was, there was so much history on the line for him. And I think usually he does, that doesn't get in the way. It may have gotten in the way a bit in the Medvedev match at the Open two years ago, but that, that he just never got on track. He was nervous. He was uncomfortable the whole match. This was different because he, he made such a terrific start. Couldn't have asked for more in the way he started and winning the first set 6-1, and yet there he was with a chance to make it two sets to love, unable to do it. And there he was having come back into the match, having won the four set, the chance to go up a break in the fifth, misses the swing volley. And I, I bet you remember, Gil, as I remember vividly, 
If you go back to match point against Stefano Tsitsipas in the 2021 French Open final, not the Aussie this year, but the French of 21, he comes in on match point. It's 5-4 in the fifth. And, and Tsitsipas hit a, 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 a hit what, it was sort of a low trajectory lob down the line. And once again, he definitely had the option of playing an overhead there, and he didn't. He hit a drive volley cross court for a winner. So to me, I, I get I get Courier's point when he said, you know, all the other players would have taken that as an overhead. But I think there's nothing wrong with having played it as a swing volley. I just think that maybe he had too much time to think and, and he got tight because that 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 swing volley, I think, is is normally very reliable. Sure. Okay. A couple things. So can, can both things be true, Gil? Let me ask you that. Yeah. Can both I, be true. I do think both things can be true. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I think... I, I think that there have also been matches that it's important to point out where Novak in a, is in a similar position and he actually is pretty tight, but the the skill gap, the talent gap makes it so that it doesn't matter. Like that was my impression of, uh, of the 2021 Wimbledon final against Berrettini, for example. I, I did not think he was playing with a lot of freedom or, you know, that the offense was coming easy to him. But he's the the gap between him and Berrettini is that where he doesn't need his A plus level. I think. Well, with- let me just jump in quickly on that, and then you finish your point. That's a good good example. Good example because he had five two in the first set. There, almost he was threatening to break him again. Then he didn't serve it out. Then he lost a tiebreaker of all things there too. And finally, he did. You're right. Then he came on strong the last three. But yeah, I agree that. You're right. There are other times when he has. It's not that he never gets tight. It's just that it you, it doesn't seem to happen on those crucial points. And mm-hmm. of course, he won 15 straight tie breaks at the majors, going back to the Australian Open. You know, and I guess six, three more. He won three there, six at the French, six at Wembley. He was on a great streak, including finishing off Sinner in a tie break in the semis. So, I guess you just don't expect it to happen there when the points are so monumental and in each case you saw the look on his face he kind of hunched over a bit after missing the sw- the uh, back end cross court on the set point just uh, looked astonished and then and then on the swing volley he looked up at his camp there as if to say how in the world did i miss that because he played the point so perfectly opening up the court coming in on a forehand down the line approach and a very good forehand down the line approach. Unlike, by the way, Gil, in the next game when he got broken, when he had yeah. far too much topspin on his approach. And as soon as he hit it, I, I said, that's points over. No way Carlos is not going to pass him off an approach like that. But the approach on the break point was perfect. And that was all Carlos could do was throw up that lob down the line. You know, that he didn't really have any other option. Yeah, it, it probably would have been. And also on the 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 bad approach shot on the next game where Alcaraz broke the cross court. There was a lot more open court if he went cross versus down the line. That's kind of where Alcaraz was, was leaning and and positioned at the time. It's true. Yeah, it's true. But I think he could have, you're right. That would, that would have been an option, but on the other hand, he at least could have flattened the approach out a bit more. And and it's funny enough. I've always felt that he's had a tendency to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm, it surprises me because he, he's able to flatten out his approach, uh, his, his forehand during rallies, you know, if he's just in the backcourt. I would think on the, if maybe he just wants to be sure he's clearing the net going down the line. I, I would love to ask him sometime why that is, but there is that tendency sometimes yeah. to cover 
cover it too much. Good, good defensive slice by Alcaraz stayed low enough that it would have been that, you know, I think that was part of why Novak maybe had to lift and, and add a little topspin. Uh, so, you know, that, that slice before the slice lob yeah, was, it, was, was pretty good. It, you know, obviously yeah. Novak still could have done a little better there. Um, on the, all right. What did you think of the serve and volley on, on set point? So this is after the two missed backhands. I can't say that that I have to give Carlos high marks on that because I, uh, how you could see that coming. I mean, Novak had not been going to that play. It was nothing desperate. It was 118. It wasn't badly placed out wide. And I would have thought he would have gotten a volley out of it at the very least. But Carlos went down the line. It was a perfect return. So I must say, I, I give, I'm surprised that Alcaraz reacted as quickly and as well as he did to that and just gave Novak no chance to even make a stab at a volley. Yeah, uh, amazing return. Same return that he hit at the end of the first set against Holger Runa on another yeah. serve and volley tight in a tie break. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a little bit strange in that spot to come in. It almost says, I don't want to hit another, I don't want to hit more ground strokes after making two unforced errors, but it was a, a phenomenal be. return. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe, but I, I also think it, it, it could well have worked. And I yeah. and, and hit the serve that hard, 118 wide. I mean, I just felt like, I can see why he wanted to maybe catch him off guard. I'm not sure it was desperation so much. So I'm going to surprise him. He's certainly not looking for this. He might even be looking for my T-serve. He loves that T-serve in the ad court. So I, I, I don't know. I, I can't really fault him on that. It's the previous two points. It's, it's the two yeah. back misses. And, and, and as he said later, I mean, look, we know, Gil, you and I know. I mean, he's had the most reliable back end of the game for the last 15 years. Uh, mm -hmm. and, he can count on that shot. He doesn't try to get too flashy off the back end. In the rallies, he play, he's got a safe margin for error. If he sees an opening to go down the line, he does it. It's his depth. It's his ball control. But he doesn't miss shots like that. And, the, and there was so much riding on that point. So I, 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 I'm not going to come down hard about the serve and volley. Yeah, totally fair. Um, on the, the swing volley... I, I kind of had the same view, and I didn't know. I didn't know that, that Courier said this on the Tennis Channel broadcast, which plays over, over replay, and, and Ubaldo. I also looked at it and said, well, that should be an overhead, and most players would hit it as an overhead. But, you know, you're right. It's very different from the backhand because when the, while the backhand cross court is one of the most consistent two-handers yeah. in, in the sport, uh, maybe right. ever, the, the overhead is, is a known uncomfortable entity for for Novak but can you recall another match where it potentially cost him like this because I always say no. it's the greatest weakness to have it's the best weakness in the world to have because yeah. opponents can't feed him overheads you could not be more right you could not be more right no I cannot think yes yes I can yes I can only one okay he played Rafa in the 08 Olympic semis and I believe it was on the match point. I, I'm pretty certain it was on the match point. Short lob from Rafa, and he completely bungled the smash. So, yes, there's, there's one instance, but it's rare. It's mm -hmm. absolutely rare. And you're right. It, 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 he knows that, so he doesn't panic about it. I have to say there are other times I'm shocked how – I'm not shocked. Other times I've seen him look really quite good on the over, including against Federer in the 2015 U.S. Open final. They hit a couple of beauties off lobs that were not that easy. Uh, so, but you're right. You can't say 
it's not like somebody with a different weakness who's been haunted by it because it's cost him many big matches. This one has not in Novak's case. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the margins were were so fine here that you know it's it's definitely going to be the match that I remember as the the match where maybe if Novak had. Uh, an overhead that he loved, that he really, really trusted, it could have gone the other way. But let's go to Alcaraz. You know, though, Gil, the interesting thing is we'd all love to see the point get replayed and where he makes the different choice to see what might have happened. And may, he may yeah. well have knocked smash, or he might have ended up playing. I don't think he would have missed it, but he might have, and my, my worry would have been that he would have played it a little too safe and given uh, Carlos another play. So, look, yeah. I... I to me, as I say, I keep thinking of the point against Tsitsipas in the French Open final a couple of years ago. And I feel like if he executes right, maybe he shouldn't have, maybe he shouldn't have gotten, maybe he shouldn't have tried to go back behind him down the line. And maybe he should have taken a nice cut at it and gone cross court. It would have been pretty hard to, for Carlos from that position to run it down and do it. And it might have been a winner. It just might have yeah. been a winner. I really do credit because down the line is definitely the tougher way to go on that. Yeah. I, I really do. He said he, he said he he said he saw him moving, Gil. When he when he came in the press conference, he saw Alcaraz moving, so he thought that was the right play. But on the other hand, he was still way over in the backhand corner, you know. So you hit it pretty hard, it hit it solidly cross court at a decent angle, and I don't even think right, uh, that Carlos is fleet footed as he is. It gets there. Yeah, I mean, well, Alcaraz is running forehand and his amazing speed. I, I feel like that can get in your head and you can want to hit yeah. behind him more often as a result yeah. of that. So I think uh, Carlitos deserves a little bit of credit uh, the other, for that. The other, the other thing we need to talk about, Gil, is that it also should, he should have been in a more comfortable position in the tiebreak, having won the first three points. And Novak, you know, uh, he gets the backhand error from Carlos on the first one, then two unreturnable serves in a row, which was very helpful, gave him that nice cushion. So it wasn't much he could have done. Two couple first serves out of Carlos, including an ace. But then that drop shot that Novak tried at 3-2 was probably mm. a mistake. That mm -hmm. was the only point on serve that he lost up until uh, uh, the, the last point. You know, so But it was an important one because instead of going to 4-2, it's 3-all. Then he wins the next point. He probably should have been up 5-2. And then, you know, that's a whole different story. There's a, there, there, he's got a cushion. Instead, it was tight. But even with all that, he had played a couple of good clutch points to get to 6-5 and should have been, been able to close it out and was disappointed in himself for not doing so. Yeah, and all of Wimbledon, Novak was making just a few more mistakes and tie breaks than what we saw at Roland Garros. Now, obviously, he was able to win all of them right, uh, right. until Alcaraz right. got him. But, you know, you, you think about the unforced error, the no unforced error streak that he had in Paris – yeah, and, you know, here at Wimbledon, there there were mistakes here and there, and that backhand drop shot is is a good one to point out as well. Uh, no, but is well taken. It's true, yeah. and he had a double fold in the first set against Hercosh that put him in trouble, put him down four three, and the next thing you know, he's down six three and had to bail himself out. But yeah, that one, I could you you saw that look on his face when the crowd was cheering and he's at set point. And you you've seen that look in his eyes. It's kind of like okay, let's let's get down to business here. Let's let's win this point. And, and the last thing he's going to do is give it away. He's going to make he's going to make the other guy earn it 99 times out of 100. And and and, and probably a, a, probably three quarters of the time, whatever he's going to 
he's going to find a way to out rally Carlos there and close out the set. And obviously the other thing that was regrettable for him, Gil, is that Carlos has a lot of pressure on him. He, he, he knows very well that if he loses that point and goes down two sets, things are looking very bleak for him. Mm-hmm. So I would have wanted him to keep, you know, orchestrate that rally the way he only he can and and just stay in the point, wait for any kind of an opening or see if you can coax an error out of Carlos, which might well have happened. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I want to ask about Alcaraz's kind of turnaround more broadly. Sure. He, sure. Loses, he loses the first set 6-1. And then from there, it, it's obviously a, a much more even match. And he plays this, this marvelous fifth set. Uh, in, in my opinion, what do you think was the the big the big change for Alcaraz? Doesn't need to be necessarily an adjustment, but but what did he start doing better that allowed him to have more success after the first set? Well, what I saw, Gil, I'm curious, I'd love to get your thoughts too. What I was impressed with was he was pressing a bit in the first set and trying to go for a little too much and, go, and going for huge forehands and hitting them three four feet long and just a, a little bit too, uh, it was overcooking shots. And Novak took full advantage of it. And Novak was almost letter perfect in the first set. And I thought Carlos adjusted well, especially in his returning, the way he would just hit these soft returns down the middle. He also used a lot of slice backhands. And I felt like he got, he became very patient and he decided he was gonna make Novak generate his own pace. He was gonna make Novak work and he was gonna show him that he could stay with him in long points. and. He did allude to that afterwards. He was very proud of himself for that, which I understand. And I think on a better day, less tight, and certainly with a two-set lead, that Novak would have hit out more freely and it wouldn't have mattered so much. But in those circumstances, it did matter. So I like the way Carlos adjusted and stopped sort of slashing and got back to some thoughtful probing play. And then he, he obviously improved his serving a lot. Because if you look at the fact that he lost, I guess he lost serve five times. But two of those were in the first set, and the third was when Novak broke back in uh, early in the second, having gone down two love, he breaks back in the next game. And then after that, you know, Carlos didn't lose his serve again. It, it didn't happen until those two breaks against him in the fourth set. So most of the way through after that first set, he served quite well, and particularly in the fifth. I thought his serving in the fifth after Novak squandered the break point was absolutely remarkable. Uh that's where I give him the most credit of all. I, I don't think he should have been in that position, in my view. But I think once he got there, I really commend him on how he protected his break. Uh, you know, he, he now had gone up the break in the fifth instead of being down a break. And then fr- from that point on, from the time that he was, uh, you know, those last four service games, let's say, he was, he was just uh, magnificent. And a lot of first serves, a lot of game-closing aces. And then the last game of all, which, of course, is what Novak lauded him for the most, mm-hmm. serving it out at 5-4 in a game that went to 30-all. Uh, again, he, he just showed no sign of nerves. That I was, I was really surprised by that because Carlos was admitted that when he lost his serve twice against Medvedev in the third set of the semifinals, having not been broken up to that point, that, it's hard to close out these big matches. He talked about playing Runa in the quarters and he was nervous because it was a Wimbledon quarterfinal. Well, this is a final. And, and he really, he was incredibly composed, I thought, in the fifth set especially. Did, did you see it essentially the same way? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in context of what happened in their Paris semi, uh, yeah. where he was unbelievably stressed in the first set, so much yeah. so that, you know, physiologically, 
uh, it, it all went downhill for him at the start of the third set. I mean, he obviously was prepared to make all of the mental adjustments necessary to avoid that from happening. So I, I knew that that wouldn't happen again, but I didn't expect him to make this big an improvement. I didn't expect him to go from cripplingly nervous to calm enough to win. Like that is a massive leap. Uh, but I, I think, you know, he got himself to believe or, or he got himself in that in the headspace that I'm just going to enjoy this Wimbledon final and and we'll see what happens, which I mean, it's just a hard thing to actually achieve to, to get that yeah. headspace. Absolutely right. And he, you know, he pretty much he admitted that I guess coming in he, deep down, he didn't really believe he could beat him. But then he started to convince himself. And obviously it had to help as he went to the changeover after the second set and he analyzed what had just happened. He's saying to himself, Novak is human. I didn't, I didn't think this guy was human. I, I mean, that surely registered with him that Novak had, had given away those two points in a row after leading 6-5. And okay, then Carlos ends it with the winner that we just talked about. But I, I think that really made him think, you know what, I, I, I can beat this guy. I can't. And, and he, he had to have been surprised that it came about that way. So, uh, and then the other thing, Gil, is he's, He's a cocky kid. I mean that in the best possible sense. We've seen it. He's got a lot of swagger. And he and he all that talk in Paris and other places about how, he, you know, he, he wants to have a smile on his face. He wasn't smiling at all. His attitude this entire match was I'm out here to win. He was serious. He was uh, he had all that composure. He had all that intensity. And yeah, he believes in himself and the way only champions do. So I guess that's why he made such a big leap, as you said. And then he got some help from Novak on those big points that clearly affected the outcome. But all credit to Carlos to close it out so well in, in the fifth. Yeah, yeah. I, the, the fifth set uh, was really impressive in so many different aspects of his game. I want to talk about the Yo, return. Yo, just a quick, a quick thing before you make that, that we go to the next thing. Okay. Surprise, I was a bit surprised too by the fact that Novak, who I, we've seen him many times, he can lose a tough set or have some have a, a difficult stretch or something might happen, but particularly losing, like for instance in Paris, I had the feeling that he had put the second set behind him very well. We'll never know because it was, you know, you know, the, the, it, it was early in the third that Carlos had the full body press. But I definitely had the feeling looking at him in those first couple of games that he was he was OK. He was all right. He was disappointed to lose a 7-5 set and a break point at 5-all having made the comeback from 5-3 down. And he, I just had the feeling then that Novak, that's kind of the way he normally handled. He might be disappointed, but he completely leaves it behind him. In this instance... I felt like the third set was a terrible set for him. And he said later, I wasn't myself for most of that set. And even though they had the 27-minute game, 13 deuces, and when he was serving at 1-3 that put the set out of reach, by, by and large, you know, he did not play a good set at all. And that, that also is unusual for Novak uh, because he put himself in a real bind by not being able to sort of plug back in early in the third, keep it, stay with him, keep it close, and perhaps even win it. But he was that that set definitely surprised me. What were your feelings about it? I did think the first few games of the set were close, and I thought similar to the first set, uh, 
there was kind of a, a letdown at the end because you lose a bunch of close games if, if yeah. you're Novak. So I, I thought that was part of it. But in, in general, I think the the worst parts of the match or the worst the worst things that were happening on court with Novak, which is that, you know, the forehand from start to finish wasn't always there. And in the second set, I mean, that that 3-1 game, he, he should have been out of that many times, but the forehand uh, just continued to to falter. And he wasn't oh, getting mean, much out of his first third, serve. The third, you mean the third set, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I yeah. said. Yeah, you said second. No, I thought right. Yes, okay. I agree. He had all those game points to close it out and miss them for you're right. And that at, at that stage, I, I honestly think this was one of those few times where he 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 couldn't prevent himself from looking back a bit and being distressed at the missed opportunity. Yeah. And that that happened often. Carlos was flying high, riding high by then too, and he played very well. But that's what made this such an interesting match. We never could have predicted. Pre Novak winning the first set, of course we could predict that, but not 6-1, not in that fashion. Mm -hmm. Then we couldn't have predicted that Novak would lose a tie break from set point up with a routine back end. Then I wouldn't have predicted that the third set would be so decisive for Carlos. You're right, a couple of close games at the beginning, but some bad misses from Djokovic as well. And then... Again, then you then you look at the fourth and 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 Carlos at that point you didn't know could Novak regroup and he escaped from fifteen forty early on and then he broke for three two and the set became his another break at the end of the set and then once again early in the fifth you think Djokovic has the momentum if he can break for two love it could be over and Carlos turns it around again that that I think is what made this match so compelling there were so many. Uh, twists and turns and and fluctuate fluctuations in, in uh, you know the the fluctuating fortunes for both players and and you you couldn't you couldn't predict it and and there were just several reversals in that way yeah uh, really well said obviously going into a fifth set novak had won uh, his last four major final fifth sets he's 10 yeah. and 1 in fifth sets at wimbledon you know and that and also, that, that was another moment Oh, yeah. And also 37 and 10 in his career in five set matches. And the other thing about it was he when he wins the first set, as, as you know, I mean, there's nobody nobody's been better. He has a point nine five eight winning percentage after winning the first set uh, in his career. And it's a crazy record. Nine hundred and twenty five and forty one, I believe. I mean, that was only the 41st time that he would ever lost a match in his entire career from a setup. And then in the major finals, it's also very unusual. Stan Wawrinka oddly did it twice against Novak in the 2015 French and the 2016 US. And then Rafa came back from a set down in the 2014 French. But otherwise, you know, he doesn't lose major finals from a setup either. So all these things were, that that's, you know, that again, I, I have to say, we have to praise uh, Alcaraz for finding a way to, a way out of the wilderness, a way out of the woods and coming back against somebody who's such a, a an astonishing front runner. Over the course of the tournament and in the final as well, Alcaraz's returning was was maybe the the attribute that to me overperformed the most uh, compared to what my my previous I guess uh, view of Alcaraz's return was. Now I knew that he broke serve all the time, but I thought that was a lot due down down to his speed and you know just how good of a baseliner he is. But I did not expect that on a grass court against so many great servers 
that he would get so many returns in play. And in this final against Novak, I mean, Djokovic wins 62% of his first serve points, which is really, really low for Djokovic. Very low. Very, very low. No, you're right. I mean, Part of that, I guess you, you weigh in the fact that, that you know, he, he lost his serve three times in that third set when he was down in the dumps a bit. But none, nonetheless, to get that many returns back with, with, and, to, and to keep Novak's first serve winning points percentage that low. Yes. And I noticed it. I felt that I could see it in the Medvedev match, too. He discouraged Daniel a lot with the number of returns he made. And, and Medvedev became very negative because he wasn't expecting some of those first serves to be coming back. You're right. It was an extraordinary returning tournament for Carlos across the board. And I, I don't, I, I can't say exactly why it came about so well, but I agree with you. I didn't expect it coming into the tournament that it would be of that standard. It was a very high standard of returning. Jari served really big. Berrettini, yeah. obviously it's, it's his calling card and Mateo's first serve win percentage was also pretty low. I mean, well, that's, that's a good, that's right. And and Mateo won the first set. So he had he was you saw that look on his face at the end of the first set. He was really exhilarated. But then there, you know, he lost his serve four times in the last three sets. That's a lot for Mateo on grass. And and again, Car- Carlos really found his range and found the right formula to break a, a big sin. So you have Berrettini with his big serve. Medvedev's got quite a good first serve himself. And then Novak, one of the best spot servers around. So, yeah, it was impressive. It was it was certainly one of the keys to the fortnight for Carlos Alcaraz. One more thing on the final, and then we'll go big picture on on the two on on both Djokovic and Alcaraz. What do you think the effect of the wind was? I was sitting there, Gil. It was considerable. In fairness, I wouldn't say I'm not saying it was just. Novak. I think Carlos had some issues with it too, controlling his forehand at times. But it, it particularly affected Djokovic on his serve and a toss. You saw him taking so long, as particularly from the opposite end, from the Royal Box, to set up to serve, trying to get the toss right, and it's so crucial for him. And it, it was frustrating him for sure. And I think at times Carlos as well. And frankly, the day before, the wind was much worse, and so the, they put the roof up for the women. I think they could have possibly done it for the men in the interest of keeping the standard as high as possible. I know it, the, the traditionalists, and I am one myself, but I consider myself a progressive traditionalist, but the, the more conservative traditionalists would, would argue it's an outdoor tournament, you can't do that, only the rain or extreme heat, but I think they had a case to maybe put it up for the final, given that these two guys have worked so hard, they're the two best players in the world, they're playing the final of the preeminent tournament in tennis so why not give them the best possible conditions i don't know how much whether they might have gone to both players and one wanted the roof up and the other didn't i don't know if they ever took it that far but the wind was burdensome and the other thing about it uh, gill sitting there in that in that center court that day was how changeable it was it would die down then it would pick up again then it would go down a little bit then it would rise up again it was you it just would not there was no way they could gauge it consistently. They, it was in the moment, at the time, you know, just adjusting constantly to where, how, how difficult that win might be. So it was significant. As yeah. I say, I would say it, it, it altered the outcome, but it didn't help either player. Let's put it that way. 
Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. I, I think that Djokovic, again, opposite the Royal Box on the near end, uh, sometimes can can tr- struggle with his footwork when the wind is at his back. Right, uh, Alcaraz, I, I Alcaraz, I think is just now, Gil. Gil, go ahead. Let me let me just address that one because you're making me think of things now, and then you you continue. Okay, it definitely affected him on a critical point there, which was right after he had squandered the break and it's it's one all in the fifth and it's 30 all and and Carlos hit one of those sort of you know down the middle I'm getting this return back in play returns mm-hmm. and nobody didn't get up to that shot he was lunging at it a bit and he hit the forehand long it was a routine forehand for him that put him down break point before the approach shot that we talked about and where he got burned by the Carlos bat but that was a very important point at 30 all and it, it backs up your point about exactly what he was dealing with from that end of the court and the wind was at his back and therefore the ball didn't come through as much as he thought it would and he lunged at it at contact and you saw he realized as soon as he'd made contact that he had not he maybe needed one more step yeah yeah versus on the other end i i never noticed that he's no that he's having any problems yeah and alcaraz look it's early in his career we're still observing in in a lot of ways uh, it, it seems like he really handles wind well in general. So I, I think he's very good at using his power uh, and his, you know, natural margin with the topspin to just kind of hit through the wind and his and his footwork, which is so crucial, is uh, tends to be very well calibrated when it's uh, windy. Also true. And listen, that's the other thing we should we should mention, Gil, is that Carlos, what he can do off the forehand is remarkable because sometimes it's just explosive and he flattens mm-hmm. it out last winners and you just sit there uh, chagrined if you're the opponent. You're just, you can't believe what he's just done. And then other times he would bother Novak with much heavier topspin off the forehand that was still penetrating, but it was hopping up more. And, and, and so he, he really can vary his forehand beautifully and, and did so quite well after the first set of this final. Um, do we need to kind of reassess Alcaraz's season right now? Because I, I think coming into this final, let's say alternate universe, he loses it. And it's okay. He's having an amazing season, but he hasn't won a major. And at the end of the day, unless you win a major, but really you need to win multiple, uh, you're not going to look back on the season and use words like dominance or 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 anything like that. But now he wins Wimbledon, and I'm looking at you know a win percentage that is out of this world good, and so many you know big titles at at the Masters, and it's I, I think off the top of my head, it's the best season that anyone outside of the Big Four has had since really the big four era. I mean, what, starting, I don't know, 2004, 2005. I, I think he's in the midst of the best season we've seen. Yeah, I, but for anybody outside for, of that. For, right, 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 not non-big four yeah, season. And, and look, he was unlucky that he was injured, so he didn't play Australia, so he didn't have a chance there. And then, of course, the full body cramps in Roland Garros did not help. So he wins Wimbledon on top of all those other titles. Uh, it's it's a very impressive record, and, that, and now we just we we have to see how this season plays out the rest of the way. But I would say he's in a pretty good position to end the year at number one. It's possible that post U.S. Open, depending on how Novak and 
and Carlos do that Carlos protecting all those 2000 points at the opening, you know, Novak coming back, having not played it. And maybe at that point, especially if he wins the tournament, but even without, I mean, Djokovic could well pass Alcaraz for a while, but I think by the end of the year, most likely, because I don't know whether Novak will play too much after the open necessarily. Carlos is, is, is very likely to end the year number one for the second year in a row. And, and he would deserve it particularly well, particularly if he won the open. But I, I do believe that was a it was a very big win for him to add the slam title and the biggest one of all to all of the other titles that he's that uh, that he'd won leading up to Wimbledon. And and that of course included Queen's Club, which we shouldn't ignore because Djokovic mm-hmm. referred to Queen's Club himself. Obviously, in his mind, he thought that's where Carlos really picked up a lot of confidence, and he did. And uh, so, you know, two grass court titles, the clay court titles, the, uh, I mean, he's going to win some more on hard. It's going to be a very versatile record for Alcaraz this year. He's 47-4. and four. That's a 92% yeah. win percentage. Right, uh, you right. Know, titles, Buenos Aires, yeah. uh, Barcelona, Madrid, uh, Queens, and Wimbledon. Oh, and Indian Wells. I, I almost forgot Indian yeah, Wells. Look at that. Already yeah. has one. Exactly. And then Masters 1000 to boot. So, yeah, no, it's it's a remarkable record. And, and that's with having missed Australia. That's with having hurt himself again and and uh, pre-Indian Wells and missing Acapulco. And there was concerns then about where he was going to be. And he, then that's with then getting hurt again during the center match, cramping and then an additional injury in Miami. Yeah. So he starts his clay court season late, misses Monte Carlo. But none of it is, it, it, it's, I guess there's been some very wise decisions made by him and his camp. And then he has just played to uh, a, an extraordinarily high level all, all year long. Yeah, I, I agree that with your characterization of, you know, decisions, wise decisions, because I, I imagine some of those injuries he could have played through, but it wasn't wise. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Particularly Monte Carlo. I, I forget exactly what the injury was, but one right. of them was like sore hand. And I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah. No, you're right. No, Monte yeah. Carlo was clearly precautionary, but but yeah. it is. and and then he also I noticed that even after Queens Club, where he'd had another kind of hamstring related injury, the leg, the trainer had come out during the final there of Queens, and uh, against Demonor, and yet he was very careful even after that to not even play that exhibition uh, mm. that at Hurlingham. You know, a bunch of the guys were coming where Novak played. I remember he pulled out and Murray played the EXO instead. And that was another wise move, probably. It was kind of like, look, they probably were going easy in practice and just being sure that he was physically, and obviously, physically, he was top-notch the entire event. Yeah, I I actually missed that. So that's that's good insight there. Uh, Coming into the year, Steve, I I went back and uh, because it was was made into a shorter video. by by my editor Maggie, your two keys to Alcaraz's season before he had played a match. So this was after the Australian Open. We talked. Uh, you said bigger first serve and handling the expectations. I feel like he's. I mean, pretty much passed the test fully in both of those categories. Oh. But I, I mean, obviously there's the Roland Garros incident. But boy, did he just write the ship there. He did. He did. And and look, he was not, that wasn't really in his control entirely what happened to Roland Garros. And so I give him a pass on that. It could, it brought about by tension. He said, okay, but yeah, to handle a Wimbledon final like that against, against somebody as, 
as incredibly accomplished as Novak, who has not lost on that court for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and to start off that final by losing a 6-1 set, and then to have Novak come back into the match and win the fourth, all of the hurdles that he, that he covered. Yeah, it, it, it he's, he's handling the expectation. Now, It'll be interesting from here, Carlos, because uh, I'm calling you Carlos. <laughs> Gil, Gil, it'll be interesting from here because think about it. All right, that we'll see what happens over the summer. Everybody's going to be eagerly awaiting a, an Alcaraz Djokovic showdown in the last major of the season because look back to really the middle of last year. Djokovic wins Wimbledon. Carlos was not ready on the grass yet, and he lost to Sinner. Djokovic can't play the open. Carlos wins his first major, three five setters along the way, and beats Rude in the final. So they win the last two majors of last year. Novak wins the Australian with Carlos abs absent. Novak wins the uh, Djokovic wins the French. We discussed what happened there, and now it's Alcaraz beating Djokovic at Wimbledon. They've been totally the dominant forces in this entire period at the majors. So I think it's uh, it's pretty likely that they could meet again in New York. I don't think too many people can stop them. Medvedev is sometimes a bit of a nuisance for Djokovic, but I think he's uh, Alcaraz is completely in Medvedev's head right now, and he is because Medvedev commented coming into the Alcaraz semifinal at Wimbledon that the court was so slow at Indian Wells, and he was going to have more help from the court. It was going to be better to play him on the grass and. He says, if I play my best, I'll, I'll have chances. The standard line of top players is a good way to put it. He didn't come close. He got beaten almost as badly as he did in Indian Wells on the, on the center court of Wimbledon. So I feel like, okay, Medvedev, maybe the matchup is better for him against Djokovic, but still Djokovic at his best beats Medvedev. So I just feel like you look around that landscape and we have a pretty good chance that these two guys duke it out in the in the u.s open final which i think would be terrific and then hopefully we're going to see it go well beyond that over the next yeah year two couple of years you know say through 2025 but if the immediate interest of course is in that u.s open what do you think are the chances that we get djokovic and alcaraz in the final my my hesitation is the the u.s open voodoo I mean, it's just, it, it has, in recent years, it has not gone as expected. And then you can even just think about, like, the fact that Federer and Nadal never played there. You're right. You're right. You know, so, uh, yeah, but but look, logically, I, I pretty much agree with you. I think on, on hard court, in fairness, I, I think Daniil becomes, you know, just a, a very clear number three, like a very, very clear number three. That's why I brought him up. That's yeah, why I brought him up. Exactly. Three. Clear three, but boy, if he ends up in Alcaraz's half of the draw, I do not like his chances at all to get to the final. I, I agree. I mean, yeah. I was going to, this was one of the topics that, that I was going to ask you about, so let's just do it now. I mean, how concerning is it for, I think Daniil is right. After the Indian Wells match, your silver lining was, oh, okay, it's a really slow court. Let's see what happens on another court. This happens on on grass, and yes, it's not a fast hard court, but at the end of the day, it doesn't look like it's going to matter much. I mean, to me, no, Steve, no. it's it's a matchup problem. It's a bad matchup for Daniil. It's a nightmare. I'm beginning to think it's going to be a nightmarish matchup. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly what was my thoughts having watched that Wimbledon match. So, but I agree with you. We can't underestimate um, Medvedev's hard court expertise. Now, with Djokovic, I would say this. You're right about the weird things that have come about at the Open. And he's had, 
when you consider what an incredible hardcore player he's been, who's won 10 Australian Opens now, that he only has three U.S. Open titles, that he's lost six finals there and had other weird things happen, like the incident with the lineswoman when he got disqualified in 2020 and, and he got hurt against Stan in 2019. So he hasn't won the Open since 2018. And so he's overdue, in my view, to win the Open. And then Carlos, of course, is fully capable of defending. So I just find it really... I just feel like they're both going to be driven to get there again. And, and that if they played again, it could be another blockbuster, you know, a good chance of that as great as both players are on hard courts and as much of that, they're going to both want it so badly. But my point being, I think that will be an interesting, interesting from a psychological standpoint, because there you talk about expectations. Now, Carlos has to go in there with some people looking at him, at, at some seeing him as the favorite to beat Novak. It, it would be an open question, but he'll certainly, it's totally different than, you know, a, a few people here and there picking him to win the Wimbledon final, but the vast majority going with Novak to suddenly now play him in the open and have to be trying to, for the first time, trying to defend a major title. And Djokovic eagerly, eager and, and exhilarated about the prospect of getting the title back. And also, getting back at Carlos in a major, not in a, not in a vengeful way, but the pride of saying, okay, because I remember the pride he had after the U S open in 2021, when he'd lost to Medvedev and that was such a disappointment. They, they played in that Paris bar C bear C final indoors. And it's one of the highest quality matches I've seen them play against each other. And Djokovic won it in three sets. He made some adjustments. He served and volleyed a lot going, especially in that deuce court going wide. And, and you could see how much it meant to him. You know, not that he disliked Medvedev on a personal level, but it's like, look, he beat me in the U.S. Open, and I'm going to return the favor here. And he, he's going to have a similar attitude in New York, regardless of what happens over the summer with him and Carlos to, in their next meeting at a major if it happens in New York. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the, the challenge of getting back at Alcaraz is going to really, really excite Novak. And yeah. that that's that's how he's spent his career, right? Like yeah. being alongside at all times, being alongside fellow greats in Nadal and Federer. I, I think it it might have gotten a I think it did get a little weird for him when when Federer retired and Rafa said, Okay, we'll see you in twenty twenty four. I imagine I mean he talked about it. He's like, I kind of felt that made me feel old. That made me think about when I'm gonna be done, which I was surprised to hear him say. Like, were you surprised, he, Gil? Were you surprised to hear him say it? I sat in the room and heard him say it. He was asked uh, by David Baldstein of the New York Times in the press conference, you know, about the rivalry and playing Carlos and how did he feel? And he was very modest about it in the sense of saying, well, you know, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around, but yeah, but we but went, went into the answer about it, it would be a great thing if they played again in New York. Why not? Maybe we play four or five hours again good for tennis, but above all, he, he, he accepts the challenge. In his mind, it's okay, so this is a new great player, and this, this, this might be the most exciting thing for me in my last couple of top flight years in the game is to take on Carlos Alcaraz and, and show him what I can do and put the pressure back on his shoulders, and I think he's definitely gonna wanna do that in New York. And strangely, I think, the crowd would, well, not strange. I think the crowd would be very divided because they love Carlos. They, they welcomed him to the Champions Club last year. They saw him win Wimbledon this year. So there'll be a lot of people really uh, fervently behind him. But I think Novak will have a certain amount of support as well, you know, from sort of a, 
the leftover from the 2021 Open. He didn't play it last year, and the crowd got behind him at the end of the Medvedev match. They, they were very yeah. sympathetic. So I think it would be a, a, a really interesting and divided crowd, and that the two players could put on a, a spectacular show there at, at, in Arthur Ashe Stadium. Mm-hmm. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. Uh, if Djokovic won the calendar slam, and let's say Alcaraz was not developing as quickly as he did and couldn't beat him in the Wimbledon final, um, or developing as quickly as he has, I should say, I kind of thought that it was going to maybe change his outlook and and the it, it might have shortened his career is actually kind of what I thought. Is that... Well, guess what? Yeah. Guess what? You and I couldn't agree more. I had the exact same feeling that if that were to happen, it were to have happened, that it was going to be just too satisfying enough that he might have wanted to even consider retiring. Because if he'd added the Grand Slam to his resume, you know, sure, he could think about trying to go on and winning a few more majors, go back to Australia, whatever. But that would have been the, an, another crowning moment on top of having the most majors. In, in the, I guess the good news for his band of supporters worldwide is that now that's off the table. So he clearly, you know, regardless of what happens at the Open, he's going to have the incentive to play on next year and probably the year after. But I, I had the exact same feeling. Frankly, I thought he was going to do it. I thought he was going to win this match and come to New York and, and very likely complete the slam based on the fact that he'd been through the experience before and it had not quite worked out in 2021 losing that final, but that this time around he would learn from that experience. And that may have been lingering in his mind. Who's to say what was going on in his, in his mind? But he, had, he certainly was weighed down more, I'm sure, by some of these thoughts. The history is, is ever present in his mind. Usually we talk about more players, but this was just such an interesting final that that we lingered on it longer. But let's get to Yannick Sinner and end with him uh, because he he did make the semis. Um, and and we we obviously did also discuss um, Daniil Medvedev um, already. Where are you at with Sinner right now? Because, you know, I, I think he's made some positive steps this year. There have been some strides. Uh, but I wasn't particularly impressed with the performance in the semifinal, and his draw was very soft until he got to the semi. I just thought he missed a lot of forehands in big moments. He did. He did. It started with the break point in the very first game when he pulled the forehand wide. Yes, he had some issues with his forehand, and and no doubt, uh, you're so right about the draw, Gil. The draw was extremely soft. I mean, there was no way he wasn't going to get through that section with the players that he collided with so yeah i i wouldn't say i was that disappointed in his caliber though because i do think novak was right the sets were a little closer than the scores indicated he they had some good rallies but you're right i mean he still was never able to break serve and that, a lot of that credit has to go to Djokovic for the way he handled big points on his serve and break points and then the other thing you could say in sinner's behalf is he the third set was the closest took it into the tie break but even there he made the fatal mistake that so many of these other guys have made, Gil, and that he's up 3-1, and you just can't double fault there. You can't. You got. I mean, you'd rather come in with a weak second serve, and at least there's some chance he, he misses or you stay in the rally. But to double fault there was catastrophic, and Djokovic did a terrific job of closing it. Yeah, I, I, jury's still out is what I would say. We can't criticize him. It was his first semifinal at a major. Mm -hmm. That's something, good draw or not. But... 
jury's still out in the sense that we need to see him work his way through a difficult draw. And, and we need to see him in a final. And we need to see him more against Djokovic and more against Alcaraz because he's looked very good against Carlos so far. Yeah. Is he be able to keep up with Carlos now that Carlos has this extra layer of confidence having won Wimbledon on top of the U.S. Open last year? Will that rivalry stay close or will Carlos separate himself to some degree from Sinner? So I'm fascinated by him, too. I, 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 I want to be positive, though, and say, look, let's let's give him through next year. But he's, you know, he, he, he so far has underperformed. Let's put it that way. That's where I agree with you. He's been an underachiever so far in his career. Yeah, I, I, I also, though, I'm with you. I've been saying let's give him a second because, you know, you look at last year, physically he clearly wasn't ready. He kept picking up these little injuries. He kept yes. wearing down in quarterfinals. So, you know, now at least this year it, it seems like physically he can do it um, and, and he can go deep week in, week out, and he's not going to break down and, and get injuries. So, you know, now he's a top 10 player, and uh, I'm kind of with you. Like, let's – give him a little bit of time to play more big matches and kind of work these things out. Uh, but he definitely needs to keep improving uh, different parts of his game if he's going to kind of match the ultimate complete player, which is Alcaraz and, and you know, the other players at the top. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I think one other benefit he has is that I think Darren Cahill is, is, is one of the real, has one of the, the most astute minds in the coaching industry. And he's got him in his corner and, I think, you know, Cahill will have a chance to constantly be in his ear, and I, I hope maybe he can get through too. But uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's complicated. Semifinal, yes. Good wins, no. Decent showing against Djokovic, but not great. So we, 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 let, let's see what he does at the Open, and let's see what he does next year. But I, I've been waiting for so long, as I think you have too, uh, for him to – strike a, a strike a strike a strike a deeper chord is how I would put it and and really show that he can be among the elite and again he there's, he's missed some moments he had for all that Carlos did at the open last year Sinner had a match point Sinner could have won that match I'm not knocking him but that could have changed that could have changed his life because maybe he would have gone on to take the title instead of Carlos so we're just sort of waiting for that kind of a moment from him where he beats a top player and it puts himself in a position to win a major because he's very gifted. We certainly know that. And, uh, but I also agree with you that in the Djokovic match, it was interesting that the forehand was ended up being a, a, a detriment in, in, in many ways. Yeah. He hasn't really had a moment against not Carlos Alcaraz. That's the thing. He's, he's, had he's played him so well he beat him in miami uh yeah. but but it's it's you look at the rest of the top players and that's where uh center hasn't had the the same also, level of success yeah sorry to interrupt Gil, but also losing to too many other players too that's another that's other, one of the things he's got to cut out is the surprise losses and get more cracks at the other top players because after miami uh, you know it started with a tough loss to to Holger Runa on the clay. But then after that, it was a, a succession of surprising losses yeah. and disappointing French Open. And he, he's got he's to start beating the guys that he should automatically beat, which he did at Wimbledon. So we got to say that even though it was the soft draws, you said he beat the people he was supposed to beat. And then that gives him a chance to play Djokovic. And okay, it didn't go as well as he might have hoped, 
but he has to get those, uh, create those opportunities for himself by consistently knocking off the players that he should be able to handle. Yeah, definitely handled the the, the pressure because uh, he was expected to get through the quarter and he did. So uh, yeah. we will we will stay tuned on Yannick Sinner. Steve, thanks as always for for such a great chat, and uh, we will we will see each other at the U.S. Open, which will be very fun. Yes, Gil, and let me thank you because I always find myself so stimulated by your questions and your way of thinking, and we agree on most matters. But it, I feel like you, you steer the discussion so well and and set the you set it up so well that you make it very easy for me to to be about <laughs> off, as they say, on various topics. Thanks. That's a great compliment. I appreciate it. Have a great one. You too, Gil.